Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to start looking uh, this morning at verse 17. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. I'm going to just tell you that the focus of this series is going to be three verses, uh, verses 22 through 24 of Ephesians chapter 4. But today, uh, I want to start by just giving you some context. I want to make uh, a couple of introductory comments uh, this morning before we really get into the heart of this series. In verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 4, the writer of this particular passage of the scripture, the Apostle Paul, gives us some incredibly insightful analysis on how a person's uh, life and heart and mind works uh, who hasn't heard or responded to the gospel. So this, this is insight in how a person who hasn't yet heard or responded to the gospel, how they live, how they think, how their heart works. Let's start reading verse 17. The Apostle Paul writes, he says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, the Gentiles here represent people who have not heard or responded to the gospel. He says, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts, having lost all sensitivity. They have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Paul says that people who haven't heard or responded to the gospel live with a sense of, you see it? He said they, they live with a sense of futility. And they may look on the outside like they have it all together, uh, but there's an emptiness inside that plagues their lives. And it leads to, notice what he says in verse 19. He says, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and notice, notice this phrase, with a continual lust for more. You see that last phrase? Given themselves over with a continual lust for more. That's addiction that Paul's talking about. That's, that's, that's addiction. What he's saying is that in order to ease the sense of futility that the person who doesn't know Christ lives with, they have to give themselves over to things that they hope will ease the pain and, and, and the anxiety that futility creates in their lives. Now, don't, don't limit the idea of addiction to just things, you know, like drugs and food and alcohol and sex. It could include, addiction could include, uh, it could include work. There are people that are addicted to work. It could include financial security. Uh, it could include relationships. It could include addiction to beauty. It, it could include... Uh, success. Somebody might say, if I just have this woman on my arm, then uh, life will get better. If I just have this man on my arm, uh, it'll all be okay. If I just have this amount of money uh, in the bank, if I can just get this amount of recognition from my peers, if I, if I can get success and get this amount of recognition from my peers, life will get better. Life will get better. And yet, what they find is that the more they give themselves over to those things, the less satisfied they are. Continual lust for more. He said, what drives those people, what drives people who don't know Christ, is a sense of futility that they can't overcome. Now again, they may be beautiful. They may be wealthy. Uh, they may look like they've got it all together. They may be very successful. He says, all those people who don't know Christ, who haven't yet heard or responded to the gospel, have this sense of futility. Now, praise God, Paul doesn't stop 
at verse 19. He goes on, we'll see it in just a moment, he goes on to show how the gospel can bring a radical change into that person's life once they hear and respond to the gospel. But I, 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 I want to just linger here for a moment. I want you to understand something. I want you to realize that there are a lot of people who have spent enormous sums of money and enormous amounts of time in therapy to get to verse 19. Where they can say, yeah, I do feel this sense of futility and, and I have given myself over to some things that, that drive my life in an addictive and controlling way. They spend enormous sums of money and amounts of time to get there. But they have no idea how to get past verse 19. And their psychologist or their counselor can't help them get past verse 19 Look at, verse, look at verse 20. Verse 20. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. And then now Paul gets into the heart of his gospel model of change. He says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by his deceitful desires. To be made new in the attitude of your mind, verse 24, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, as I said, we're going to spend the next five weeks looking at those three verses, verses 23 through 24. But I want to point out here that what Paul is saying is that the only way to get beyond the predicament that he describes in verses 17 through 19, where you have this sense of futility that drives you and that makes you get into addictive kinds of behavior, the only way to get beyond that predicament is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this creates an enormous problem for modern psychology. This is why people spend enormous amounts of money and time in therapy, um, understanding the cause of their problems, but having no idea how to change. Because you see, modern psychology has eliminated faith from the therapeutic process. For 300 years, Western society has been told over and over and over again that all we need to build a society is science. And modern psychology has accepted that idea. And so they try to help people through science and science alone. Now, by the way, I want you to understand something. I am not anti-science. In fact, I am pro-science. But I am anti-science without faith. You have to have both, science and faith. I'm not anti-science. I'm just anti-science without faith. Because here's the problem with the science-only way of thinking. Here's the thing. Science can only tell you what is. It can never tell you what ought to be. Never. Can't do that. Because the minute you get into uh, talking about what ought to be, you're making a value statement. And science can't make value statements. Only faith can do that. One of the big problems that we have in our, our culture today is that in every field of study, psychology, sociology, urban planning, politics, all of these, nobody can agree on what a human being ought to look like. And so we have descended as a culture into a society of very vociferous, loud, opinionated, special interest groups who have nothing in common and who can't agree on what a human being ought to look like. So imagine you go to your secular psychologist and you go with something that is troubling you in your life. Let's say it's racism. 
you find that you have a struggle, you kind of struggle with racist thoughts and tendencies for behavior. You go to your secular psychologist. Your secular psychologist can do a terrific job, if they're good, they can do a terrific job of helping you understand why racism is an issue in your life, and they can help you understand when it happens and, and when it began and under what conditions you tend to uh, express this racism. Well, he or she can never tell you first, they can never tell you that racism is wrong and that you ought to change. Because that's a value statement. Science can't make values. And they can also never tell you how to change because they have no model for what you ought to change into. You understand that? Really, only a Christian psychologist can give a coherent answer to what a human being ought to look like. Christian psychology could say, yes, racism is wrong. And they could say, you ought to change. And the ideal of what you ought to change into is Jesus. You ought to be like Jesus. He's, true. He's what true humanity was designed to be. He's the ideal. Science, on the other hand, could never tell you that. Now look, my point is, that again, I'm not anti-science. I just want you to understand that science without faith is insufficient to solve the problems that plague our world today. They can never change anything. Science can never change anything. It will always tell you what is. It can never make a value statement about what ought to be. Faith is necessary for that. Only faith can say what ought to be. Now, okay. With that said, at the risk of being overly repetitive, I want to look again. I just want to read these three verses one more time. Uh, verses 23 through 24, because they include, they're the gospel model for change. You want to know how to change? These verses address it. And I want to make a couple of introductory comments this morning, and then next week we'll get more into these verses. Uh, we'll probably do an overview next week, and then we'll really dig into each one of the parts of these verses in the next three weeks after that. Well, let's read these verses one more time. I just want you to see it again. You were taught with regard to your former way of life. Okay, so before uh, you say you say that before you were before you responded to Christ, this is how you lived. But now that you've come to know Christ, here's what you were taught. He says you were taught to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. You were taught to be made new in the attitude of your mind. And you were taught to put on the new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. By the way, that last sentence, again, science could never make it say what you were created to be like. Like you were created to be like God in righteousness and all science could never make it say. Okay, here's my first introductory comment that I want you to get about the gospel model of change. First introductory comment. I want you to see that these verses promise that change is possible. If you've been discouraged, if you've come to a place that you think you can't change, if you've come to a place that you think, man, the gospel can't change my life, it can't change anybody's life, let me tell you something. The Bible says that change is possible. In fact, what I want you to see is that this passage 
it's not talking about just small little changes, small little like behavioral changes, bad habits, annoying traits. That's not really what's in focus here. I mean, that's included, but that's not what this is saying. This passage promises much more radical and comprehensive change than that. This says it happens through the gospel. Through the gospel, it says, you are able to put off your old self and put on a new self. And in using those words, Paul is using the language of identity here. He's saying the gospel completely changes a person's identity. Now let me explain to you what I mean by that. Saw a few moments ago, we said that before you respond to the gospel, uh, you were given over to certain things that you believe would give your life meaning and maybe ease some of the pain of the uh, futility that you felt. Here's the question. How did you come to believe that whatever it was that you, you know, as you think back and you gave yourself over to, how did you come to believe that those things would reduce the pain and anxiety that you felt? How did you come to believe that? Well, the answer is the culture in which you grew up. So, for instance, we'll start with the immediate culture in which you grew up, your family. Your mom might have told you, she might have emphasized over and over and over again, it is important to be thin. And it is important to be beautiful. And you have got to have a man. You've got to attract a man. You've got to get married. And so you gave yourself over to those things, and you were like, man, I've got to do that. I've got to be thin. I've got to be beautiful. I've got to have a man. And that, that's what you gave yourself over to. Or maybe your dad told you, um, he said, if you're going to be a man, the important thing about being a man, he said, was you've got to be responsible, and you've got to have a good work ethic. And so through your life, I mean, you were like driven. And you still are, man. You're driven to be the most responsible person you know. The most, the hardest working person that you know. You got the best work ethic of anybody that you know. And that's like you're, you're driven toward that. So you're, see, your immediate culture, your family probably gave you some things. Whatever those things And you were like, I've got to do those things. That's just, this is what it means. Um, this is what life is about. And then perhaps your local culture emphasized certain things. Like here in the area, maybe, maybe it was, I, I don't know, maybe it was like, uh, uh, you got to be a West Sider. A West Sider dog. I mean, it's like you be a West Sider. Or, or, or you got to be an East Sider. Don't, don't, you don't even want to know those West Side people. I'm not, I don't know. That's, you know, local culture gives you a sense of what's And then there's the national culture. As well. And as you watch TV and movies and all that, you, you know, you came away with a sense of man, you know, life is about being successful, it's about being rich, it's about being wanted, it's about living in a certain place and driving a certain car. And so see, all of these cultural values began to form your identity. And by the way, you know what all those cultural values, you know what the Bible calls all those cultural values? That's what the Bible is referring to when it talks about the world. You see the Bible, if you, if you read the Bible and it says the world, this is what it's referring to. All those cultural values, all that tendency to overvalue certain things, and to say that these are the things that make life work. 
That's, that's what the Bible is referring to as the world. The world, just understand this, the world is not a geographic place. And when you see the Bible talking about the world, don't love the world, it's, it's not saying don't love the ge geography of the world. It's saying don't love those values that tend to overvalue. Don't, don't, don't love those cultural influences that tend to overvalue certain uh, you, you guys heard that phrase? Any of you heard this phrase, um, be in the world but not out of the world? Do you, you know that phrase? I don't think that's a helpful phrase. Because I think it makes it sound like the world is a geographic place. If the, the world isn't a geographic, it's not, it's not what the Bible means. It means means don't love the value system that overvalues certain things and it makes them equal to your identity. All of those things that you've been taught, by, maybe by your parents, maybe by the local culture, the, natural, the, the national culture, all of these things tend to become so central to who you are that they become your very identity and they define who you are and then consequently they dictate how you live. They dictate what you do. Westsiders do this. Eastsiders do this. Successful people do this. Um, rich people act like this. What Paul says here is that the moment that you become a follower of Christ, the gospel is so powerful that it cuts through all of that and suddenly your life is reoriented around a whole new identity. So that you no longer say, I do this because I'm a Westsider, or I do this because I'm a Kincaid, or, or I do this because I'm an American, or I do this, I, I act like this because I'm in labor, or I act like this because I'm in management. Paul says the gospel gives you a whole new identity and that new identity now is Follower of Christ. That's your new identity. Follower of Christ. And now what happens is the moment that you become a follower of Christ, you begin to live your life oriented around this completely new identity as a follower of Christ, which replaces the old identity that you once had and its misplaced values that drove you in a controlling and addictive way. And this change of identity, Paul says, happens at the moment you become a Christ follower. But, you know, just listen to this. So, new identity, moment you become a Christ follower. Yes, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. That moment, you're given a completely new identity. But, you just need to know this. That the outworking of that takes time. I just um, It's like, over time, this new identity begins to change the way that you live your life. I'll give you an example of that. March 1989. Three Ku Klux Klansmen filled the streets of Mobile, Alabama, intent upon killing the white. One of the Klansmen was a man by the name of Tiger Nose. The man that these three clansmen spotted was a 19-year-old young black man by the name of Michael Bob. The three clansmen beat him senseless. They slashed his throat with a knife. They hung his body from a tree there in Mobile. And then they lit a cross in the front lawn of the front door. Okay. The three clansmen fought, and Tiger Knowles 
became one of those who was sentenced to life in prison. Six years after the criminal trial, uh, the family of Michael Donald, the young black man who was killed, decided that they wanted to bring a civil suit against the Ku Klux Klan for their involvement in this. At the trial, uh, at the civil trial, Cochran Knowles was led into Portland and he headed straight for Michael Donald's home. When he got to her, he stood in front of her and he said in a quivering voice, he said, This is all I want you to know if I can trade places right now with this time, I will do so. Will you forgive me? Savannah, who was a follower of Christ, said, Son, I already have. The question is, what changed in Tiger Knowles? Why did the prison harden his heart and fortify his racism even more? Because that's what it does with a lot of people. But people didn't know, very few people. During that six-year period of time, between trials, in prison, I girls had heard and responded to the gospel. In prison, he became a Christ follower. And his identity changed from a Ku Klux Klan member to a Christ follower. And consequently, when his identity changed, so did his racism. And he suddenly began to feel remorse over the hatred and the racism that he had felt. I want you to understand that the gospel is so powerful that it changes your identity completely. And over time, it can radically change your behavior as well. There's nothing else in the world that could bring that kind of radical change and that kind of racial reconciliation between a former Ku Klux Klan member who had killed the son of the black woman. She can forgive, he can ask for forgiveness. That's the kind of change that gospel can bring. Because it completely changes your identity. The moment that you come into Change is possible. Whatever it is that you're wrestling with this morning, whatever it is that you're struggling with, whatever it is that you go, oh, I just wish I could change this, but I can't change it. I've tried so many times, I don't know how to change it. Let me tell you something. These three verses that we're going to look at in the next five minutes can change whatever it is that you're dealing with this morning. Change is possible. Second, you're about to comment and then we'll wrap up. I want you to see from these verses that the gospel model for change, I want you to see this, that it starts with thinking. The change starts with thinking. You see that? Go all the way back to verse 17 for this moment. I tell you this and insist on it, Paul says in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. And go all the way down to verse 23. He says, I want, he says, you've been taught. To be made new in the attitude of your minds. Now, this is, this is very important. If you will notice in the next few weeks as we do this series, if you will just pay attention, 
through all the secular techniques for change that you see in magazines and books and radio and TV and the internet, you will find that unlike the gospel, those techniques don't start with thinking. They all go straight to technique. If you read an article in Vanity Fair or in Good Housekeeping about changing something in your life, it's not going to say, let's start by thinking. What's the meaning of life? Uh, where, do you, where do we come from? What's important in life? What's the goal of life? They're not going to start with thinking. They're going to go straight to technique. How to keep a man. Seven habits of highly effective people. Three ways to relax. You see, they go straight to technique. Why? Why do they go straight to technique? The answer is, again, because they want to remain secular and scientific. You see, according to science, we only exist because we're an accidental collision of molecules. So there's no moral obligation to live in any certain way. There's no transcendent being that says, this is right, this is wrong. So they can't start with thinking, or there'd be no point to an article. Because who says that keeping a man is good? Who says not having a bunch of men is good? Who says, uh, who says it's better to be effective than to be ineffective? Who says relaxation is good? What I want you to see is that the secular methods of change are recommending change with no intellectual ground to do so. Uh, they, they, they refuse to think out the implications of their beliefs. I want you to see that Christianity works exactly the opposite. The Bible says, what Paul is saying here is, he said, do you believe this world was created by God who wanted our fellowship? And even though we turned away from it, he's moving heaven and earth at infinite cost to himself. He came down in the form of his son to give us back. And Paul says, if you believe that, if you understand that, then think. Don't keep thinking in a futile way that people who don't know that thing be renewed in the attitude of your mind. Let that renew your mind. Let it, re let it renew the way you view life, and the way you live, and the way you treat people, the way you see yourself. Secular self-help says, I'm not going to think about the implications of my belief that we're just accidents here in the universe. But I'm going to recommend change anyway by technique. That's stupid change. Uh, that's change by getting numbered. The Bible says that the gospel approach to change is change by getting smarter, by thinking things out. Is history a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing? Or is history all about the love of God? That makes a difference in the way you see things. So he also says, think it through. There is no intellectual end run to change. If you want real change, if you want gospel change, you can't take any intellectual shortcuts. And some of you say, well, that's, that's weird. I've never thought of Christianity as thinking more. I just, I've thought of Christianity instead as, as like, you know, just close your eyes and just believe. No. Sorry, I'm very happy to disabuse you of that notion. There's absolutely no way that real change can happen in your life without doing the intellectual work. Without exploring, studying, answering your questions and objections to faith, without working through those things. There's no intellectual shortcut for Christianity, the gospel change. A few years ago, I found myself, I found myself uh, 
wrestling through an issue of how do you minister to people and help them uh, grow in Christ if they don't want to read the Bible. And I, mean, I thought for a long time about that, and I finally came to the conclusion, you can't. You can't help people if they don't want to read the Bible. There's no shortcut. This book is unlike any other book that you will ever find in any bookstore or library in that it claims to be alive. You've never read another book that's alive. Now, if it's alive, it's the only book in history that's ever been alive. You'd be very wise. You need to read it and study. I know that there are places that are hard, but not everything is hard. You need to make it to serve your country. You want to change. There is no intellectual shortcut. Change begins with your thinking. You need your mind to read. Let me just close this up. Understand that all of this is contingent upon having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because this morning you've never come to a place where you said to yourself, Yeah, I need a Savior. I, 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 I'm a sinner. I need to change you. I need a Savior. You need to know this. You are more of a sinner than you can ever know. You also need to know that. You are more wrong about that than you would ever get. That sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for you. You're the only person in the Send his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross. Right out and try to see your seat, you can say, I want, yes, I want you to be my savior. Change can begin at that moment. Outside of that, I can't offer you. Maybe vanity for a maybe good housekeeping, but I can't offer you. Change that we're talking about, the kind of radical change that changes your whole identity, begins your relationship with Jesus. Your hands in if you're here this morning and never accepted Christ as your Savior, right now. Right now. Don't wait another moment. Don't wait another moment. Right now. I acknowledge I'm not a sinner. I need to change. I know that. And I believe that the only way to do it is to be my Savior. The Bible says at the moment that you do that, your entire identity. Now, there are some of you here this morning that have made that decision, but you're still wrestling with stuff. I mean, we all are. Never want to see it. But there's stuff in your life that you're going to know it needs to change. I just not have any success changing. But you're just right now. Lord, make me open what you have to say to me. This passage is written in my Thanks for having me.
Lord, I'm the first to say that there are many things in my life that need to change. Lord, I pray through this series that you would change me. Amen. And I pray that we would always change. Not pray as a result of our experience of change, but that we sense throughout the city of Evansville a sense of revival, a sense of expectation about about the gospel. Change me, change us, and change us to the power of the gospel. Mm-hmm.